Thank you. Yeah, 27. Huh? 22nd? You were there. You know that was not 27 years ago. So, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here together this morning. I love all of you very much, and I'm excited to look at uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning. We've been on a series, again, of Isaiah 61, which is sort of a core uh, passage of Scripture for us as a church, where we really, God really gave us the vision for planting this church out of Isaiah 61. And so I know a lot of us are already very familiar with it, so we're going to continue with that today. We're still looking at the heart and the healing of the heart. And as, as we've been going through that, it's, it, Paul and I both have had a hard time getting past that because we just sense that God's doing stuff in the heart. And so we want to stay on that as long as it takes for whatever he wants to do in us right now as a church. We want to stay there. So I'm just briefly going to read that one scripture from Isaiah 61 where it says, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. So this is a prophecy about Jesus, that Jesus was sent to heal the brokenhearted. The Spirit of God was on him. The gospel was the message that he brought. But the, the gospel is good news that heals our hearts. And so that's the ministry of Jesus, and he gives us the same ministry, but he heals our hearts. That's what, that's what Jesus does. And today, we're going to look at what it means to be wholehearted, W-H-O-L-E, wholehearted. And we're also going to look at worship and how worship relates to being wholehearted. So we all have a purpose a destiny. God has a plan for each one of our lives. And when we talk about that, I often say it's not out there somewhere. It's today. God's plan for my life is today. And yes, at the end of your life, you do look back and it's, you see a big picture, but don't wait for that one day, for God's plan to one day happen or God's purpose for my life, like it's out there somewhere. Sure, there is a big picture, but it's today. God has plans and purposes today for us, but he does have a plan. He does have destiny. He does have purpose for each one of our lives. And when we study the Bible, we see in the Old Testament that there, there was a promised land. Are a lot of you familiar with that? In the Old Testament, there was a promised land that was talked about for the children of Israel, for the people of Israel, that God had promised that he would give them a land. So when we look at the Old Testament and we read about the promised land, that represents our promised land. That represents the promises God's given to us. That represents God's purposes for my life, God, the destiny that God has for you. That's what the promised land represents when we read about it in the Bible. So the people of the nation of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt, and God delivered them from Egypt. He raised up Moses as their leader, and they were saved from that situation, and they went out into the desert. They followed their leader, Moses, and they were headed toward their promised land. They were headed toward this land that God had promised to give to them as their inheritance. But before they got there, they actually ended up spending 40 years in the desert as they followed Moses. Have you ever had a promise that God's given you, but it takes a lot longer to get there than you thought it was going to take? Well, that's what they were going through. It was taking 40 years, and some of that was because they didn't believe God. Some of that was because of bad choices that were made. But isn't that true for all of us, right? Sometimes it takes longer just because, but sometimes it takes longer because we haven't done what we needed to do. So that's the situation they were in. They were in the desert for 40 years. And during that time, 
they sent some spies into the promised land to see what it was like. And the, the spies came back, and they had all these reports of, like, these giants and how difficult it was going to be to take this land and all the armies they were going to have to conquer. But there was one guy named Caleb who was one of the spies, and he had a different report, the Bible says, that he believed that they could take the land. He was like, God's going to give us this land. Yes, there's giants, but we can do this. So Caleb was the one that had a different kind of report, okay? Eventually, all of the people of Israel died in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb. Joshua became the new leader when Moses died. And Caleb, the one spy who believed, they were the ones who actually got to go into the promised land. Out of the whole original group of two million people, they were the only two left. And of course, there were many more people that had been born during those 40 years. But Joshua and Caleb were the only two that got to actually see the promised land. So what was so special about them? Why did they make it to their promised land? Why did those other people all die? Why did Caleb make it? This is what uh, Moses said about Caleb. Joshua 14, verse 9. If you're, if you're taking notes, I'm going to read from Joshua chapter 14, verse 9. And this is what Moses said about Caleb. It says, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. There's that word, wholeheartedly. So that's what was different about Caleb. He followed God wholeheartedly. So the Old Testament of the Bible was written in the language of Hebrew. And if we look at that word wholeheartedly in the Hebrew language, it means to be full, to be full, okay? So Caleb got his inheritance because he lived with a heart that fully followed God. It was filled with believing God. It was filled with, I want to follow God. I want to obey God. It was filled with faith. That word wholehearted in English, if you look it up in our dictionary, it means completely and sincerely devoted, determined, or enthusiastic. So Caleb followed God with all of his heart. He wasn't holding anything back. So if that Hebrew word means full, that full, like if you imagine a full bowl, or if you imagine a heart filled, it gives us an image of a whole heart, right? not a fragmented heart. In other words, not a broken heart. It's kind of hard to have a full heart and for it to be broken, right? Because then it's not going to be able to contain that fullness, right? So I can imagine that for Caleb in those 40 years in the wilderness, so by now he's an old man. The Bible says he was 85 when he got his inheritance. I can imagine that those 40 years were probably some hard times, right? Wandering through the desert, probably going to be kind of hard, right? He was with two million people who didn't believe what God had said, who were complaining, who were doubting. It must have been discouraging. It was probably really painful at times. There were probably a lot of hurts and disappointments. He must have gone through some junk in those 40 years, I can imagine, that that would have been what he experienced. But not only did Caleb continue to follow God, with all of his heart and all of his commitment, but Scripture indicates, which we're going to read now, that he managed to keep his heart healthy, too. Look at verse 10 of what we were just looking at there in uh, Joshua 14. Now let's look at verse 10. It says, Now then, 
Uh, This is Caleb talking. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness. Caleb says, so here I am today, 85 years old. Listen to this. He says, I am still as strong today as the day that Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. I want to be that way when I'm 85. I want my heart to be just as strong and full of faith. It doesn't sound like, through these words that we just read of Caleb, he doesn't sound discouraged, does he? He doesn't sound like a broken person through all the hardship and the pain that he's been through. No, he sounds full of faith. He sounds strong of heart. So not only did he keep going, but he didn't arrive at the promised land like broken, right? He arrived with a healthy, whole heart, strong and full of faith. He said, I am still today just as strong as I was when I started out. I want to finish my life just as strong in God as when I started out. Not broken, not discouraged, not no longer believing him, not with pain and brokenness that has become a part of my life. Yes, I will go through pain. Yes, I will go through difficulty, but I want to allow God to keep my heart whole. I don't just want to barely finish the race. I want to come through wholehearted with my heart intact. Verse 9, as we already read, says that he followed God wholeheartedly. And if we look even at that English word wholehearted, and we do a little bit of a play on words here. I'm taking a little bit of a license here. This is not like now studying the Hebrew. I'm just doing a little bit of a play on words myself. If you break apart that word wholehearted, it gives us the image of something that's whole and not broken. So the word wholehearted actually means all in, giving your whole self to it. But I'm saying let's play with that word a little and say whole-hearted, as in a heart that's not broken, a heart that isn't falling apart, okay? The word whole, if you look up the word whole in English, it means free of wound or injury or recovered from wound or injury or it means being healed. So it's great if you've never been hurt or wounded. But if you have, you still can be whole. You can be recovered, or you can even be being healed. Isn't that awesome? That that's what it means to be wholehearted. That if your heart is being healed, if you're, if you're recovering from pain, you can have a whole heart. That is so encouraging. So those 40 years that Caleb was in the desert, he kept moving through the disappointments that he experienced. He faced things. He was probably disappointed that they weren't getting to the promised land quicker. He was probably saying, if these people would just get in line and get themselves together, the promised land is right over there. We can, like, just go in. If people would just cooperate, that was probably very discouraging and frustrating to him. But he kept moving through it, and he kept his heart whole. He didn't allow that to break his heart. He kept moving through the doubt that everyone around him had. He kept moving through the struggles that he faced. He kept moving through the insecurities that he probably even felt, probably doubted himself. I'm not a good leader. Why can't I get these people to to cooperate? He moved through the pain that he must have experienced. Can any of you identify with that? I can. The idea that we need to, yes, experience those things, but keep moving through them. 
I feel that oftentimes we want God to deliver us from our emotional difficulties when he often wants to grow us through them. We're faced with the challenges around us and very real feelings, and we just want God to fix it. But he's saying, I want you to keep moving, and I'm going to grow your heart through it. Your heart is going to be stronger through it. Your heart's going to have more capacity as you move through these circumstances. The Lord's really been speaking to me the last couple of months around this. And if, if you know me, you know that I love the concept of purpose. I love the concept of where we're going, what are we shooting for, that, that we've got a call on our lives to go somewhere in God. But what the Lord's been showing me the last couple months, which is becoming as real to me as that, is that not only do we need to follow that purpose wholeheartedly with all of our hearts, but it, it's just as important that we do it with a healthy heart. I think in life, if I can just be honest with you, I've never struggled with putting my heart all into it. That comes easy for me. I'm a go-getter. I'm glad to give it all I've got. I'm glad to work down to the last drop of energy that I have. That's easy. That's the easy part for me. I'm not saying that's easy for everybody, but for me, that comes easy. But it hasn't always been easy for me to do that with a healthy heart. Sometimes I've done that with bitterness in my heart. Sometimes I've done that complaining. Sometimes I've done that with pain. Sometimes I've done that not allowing God to keep my heart healthy because we don't have to go through that with a broken heart. God wants to raise us a little bit higher and lift our sights a little bit higher and say, that's good, I'm glad you're still moving, but I've got more for you. You can move along and you can do it with a whole heart, with a healthy heart with a heart that's not broken. I'm learning that the health of my heart has a direct connection to how much of God's purpose I will actually walk in. That it's not enough just to not give up. I need to keep my heart healthy as I go if I'm actually going to make it to the promised land. Because some of those people in the wilderness, their hearts weren't healthy and they didn't make it into the promised land. So it's just as important that we keep our hearts healthy as it is that we keep going. Proverbs 4.23, I love this verse, and I know that a lot of you know it. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything that you do flows from it. So this scripture connects the heart and purpose. Our heart condition is connected to what we're actually able to do in the end what we're actually able to accomplish for God. And hear me, I know we don't do things for God. He doesn't actually need us to do anything for him, but he does have a plan, right? And if we're going to walk in that plan, then my heart has got to be healthy if I'm actually going to accomplish what I need to do because everything that I do flows from my heart. So I'm supposed to guard it. I'm supposed to make sure it's healthy. I'm supposed to make sure that it stays healthy. But, like I was just referring to, life happens, and our hearts sometimes get hurt and wounded along the way. We get discouraged, we get tired, we get frustrated, we get doubtful, right? These are things that we face as we move through life. Life gets in the way, and, and sometimes our hearts get in the way, even of our ability to follow God wholeheartedly. So I just want to share a little bit this morning with you 
um, just from my own journey, um, in planting Border City Church and in moving to a new city and starting over again in our lives, um, there were some events and situations and circumstances that in that process did not unfold as I was expecting them to, right? Have you ever been through a moment like that where you kind of have an idea of what you think is coming and then as it actually begins to unfold, you're like, oh, this isn't what I was expecting this to look like or feel like. And your expectations become one of your biggest enemies, right? So I did go through some difficult moments, some challenging experiences, and even some painful moments as we have walked out this journey of coming to Detroit and planting this church. And Jesus has walked with me through all of it. He's been there for me. He's been there with me. He's loved me through it. He's encouraged me. Um, But a lot of times I was still holding on to the whys. I was struggling with the why. Why, though, Lord? Why? This doesn't make sense. Why did it happen this way? Why did that not happen And what was that? What was that about? Why did that, you know, why? Like, just why? And early on this summer, I was sitting on our front porch one night after dinner, and I had a drink in my hand, and I was asking God, I was just sitting there alone talking to God and just asking some of those whys. Like, I'm okay, Jesus, I'm okay, you're with me, but why, you know? And I felt very strongly that I needed to open my Bible app. So I pulled out my phone that I had there with me, I opened my Bible app, and it opened right to um, Matthew 26, 39. It wasn't like the scripture of the day or anything. It just like happened to open right to Matthew 26. And I started reading there, and this is, um, this is where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane before he was going to be crucified. And I read this, and it says... Um, My Father, this is Jesus talking, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And I'm sitting there holding this cup, and I've got my phone in my other hand. I've got a cup in my left hand. I've got my phone in my hand. And I just so strongly felt the Lord saying that to me, like, you would have loved me to have taken these difficulties from you. You would have loved for it to have gone differently. Even Jesus wanted things to go differently. He didn't want to have to die on the cross. I mean, who would want that, right? He was willing to, but that's not what he would have chosen to do. And Jesus said, yet not my will, but yours be done. And in that moment, I was like, really, God? Really? Like, you would have wanted me to go through some of these circumstances? And that I really, it took me like a few weeks probably to get my mind around that maybe possibly some of these things that I've walked through have been part of his plan. And I was like, whoa, these things that I've fought, these difficulties and challenges and even painful experiences. I'm not saying that God hurt me. I'm not saying that. But we all will walk through situations, right? And that part of these, some of these things possibly were even part of his plan, because of what he's bringing. Because we know what happened right after Jesus prayed that, right? He did go to the cross. He did die. But what happened? We were forgiven of our sins. We were restored to relationship with the Father. And Jesus was risen from the dead. 
And he has like all victory and all power, and he's given all that to us, which would not have happened if he had not gone through that difficult situation, if his heart had not been broken. And just think of the agony that he went through in the garden. That probably was the most painful part of it, is knowing what was coming and having to say, okay, I'm going to go ahead with this. So Jesus identifies with our pain, and he chose to walk through what God had for him because of what was coming. What if there is purpose on the other side of my pain and your pain? What if there's purpose coming from what we've walked through or what we may be walking through today? Okay? I'm not saying that we put a period there and we sit in our pain or we sit in our difficulty, but can we look through it to what's coming, because that's what Jesus did in the garden. He looked through what he saw was coming, and through the pain he was experiencing, and he could see what was coming on the other side. And I've sensed that the Lord has been ministering to my heart, stop asking why, Minda, and start asking Jesus, where are you in this? Start scanning the horizon, looking for where Jesus is in this pain and in this difficulty. What glory do you want to reveal, Jesus? What resurrection life is coming my way through this circumstance? How is your power going to be revealed on the other side of this pain? We need to look through the pain to the promise of God. When we feel pain in our hearts, like what I was just describing, some of what I've experienced in my heart, when you feel pain in your heart, it's a sign. It's a sign, right? Like Rebecca was having pain, That's a sign that something was broken in her knee. Pain in our hearts is a sign that something's broken. And when we experience pain, it's a sign that God wants to heal something deeper in us. It's a sign that not everything is fixed yet. And sometimes we'll even experience pain that he's already touched that area of our life before. And then some time goes by and then there's pain again. And you're like, what? Wait, wait a minute. God already healed that in my heart. Well, that's a sign that there's something deeper. You've walked further with God. More time has passed. You've grown. He wants to go deeper in your heart. There's a sign that there's more that he wants to do. It's a good thing. Pain is an opportunity for you to become more whole. I recently read a book uh, just a few weeks ago by Christine Kane. If you don't know who she is, She's uh, known around the world right now as a leader in the body of Christ, as a speaker, as a writer, someone that I greatly respect and that a lot of people greatly respect. She was adopted as a child, um, as a baby, and then in her childhood, she experienced some abuse and went through a lot of difficult circumstances. It's quite remarkable what she has actually been able to achieve uh, around the world Uh, reaching out to victims of um, trafficking, human trafficking, um, considering the background that she's come from. And I had read about a lot of those experiences in her life in one of her previous books that I had read. That book, I think, is called Unashamed. So I had read about that a few years ago, but I was reading her new book that was just released, and this new book is called Unexpected. If you have an opportunity to read it, I suggest you read it. It's so good, no matter what your circumstances are. And in this new book, she is talking about how recently her adoptive mother passed away. 
And when that happened, she gained some new knowledge about her birth mother that she had not known before. And it kind of caused all this old pain to resurface in her heart, which surprised her because she thought she'd already worked through all that stuff. So I'm reading in the book, and and she said that when this pain began to resurface in her heart, she began to engage Jesus on it. She said, I did what I always do, and I went to Jesus with it. And that's so important, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute, that when we have pain, that we engage God on that spot because he wants to do something in that spot. So she went to Jesus with it, and she said that she went to her Bible, and she continued reading where she'd left off the day before. She just continued on the next chapter, and she was expecting Jesus to speak to her and to help her with this pain she was experiencing. And where she was reading was John 5, verse 6. And this is where Jesus goes to Jerusalem, John 5, verse 6. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he goes to this pool called Bethesda. And around this pool in Jerusalem, all these uh, disabled people would lay around this pool, blind people, lame people, crippled people. And there was this legend at that time that the water would stir, and whoever got into the water when the water would stir, whoever was the first person in would be healed. So these people would just spend their whole lives, they were homeless, and they would lay by this pool, and if the water stirred, they would try to get into the pool. But obviously, if you're crippled, you're going to have a hard time getting in. So Jesus comes to one of these crippled men laying by this pool, Bethesda, and it says that he'd been paralyzed for 38 years. We've all experienced things in our lives that maybe have left us feeling crippled or unable to move in a particular area of our lives left us hurt, left us immobile. So this is just like Jesus coming to us, okay? So he goes to this man lying there, and Jesus says to the guy, do you want to be healed? That's what he asks him. Like this guy's already laying there by this pool where healing happens. Of course he wants to be healed, right? But Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? And I'm reading this book by Christine Kane, and she's telling that she read this. And she said, as she read that in her Bible, the words just leapt out of her, leapt out at her. And she said, she laughed out loud. And she said, Jesus, are you asking me if I want to be healed? Like she said, she actually laughed about it. And she said, she'd already written this other book about her healing. Like she'd already told the whole world about how Jesus had healed her heart in this very issue. Like she's saying, like, we've already been through this, Jesus. Like, you've already searched out every corner of my heart. Like, we've already wrapped this up, and we've done that already. Do I want to be healed? But she said after a few moments, she began to realize, and she said just with her history with Jesus, that she knew that if he's asking that, then there must be more. There must be more healing that needs to happen. And that she's learned that whenever he goes after that, that there's greater fruitfulness on the other side that there's a reason he wants to heal more because he wants her to be able to do more, to reach more people. She said, he always works more deeply in me before working more broadly through me when he's preparing to impact more people. I want to read that again, and I want you to apply it to your own heart, to your own life. Don't think it's strange if God's dealing with things in your heart, maybe that he's already healed before. He always works more deeply in me before working more broadly through me when he's preparing to impact more people. Jesus will keep coming after your pain until it is fully healed. Your purpose and your promised land is not just about you. 
It's about the people he wants to reach through you. So this current pain that you might be in or whenever pain reoccurs, it's an opportunity for more wholeness so that more people can be reached. Jesus wants to heal us because he loves us, but he also loves everybody else that he wants to use us to reach, and that's why he heals us. So Jesus said in in this John 5, verse 8, he asked the man, do you want to be healed? And then he says, get up, take your bed, and walk. So he asked the man, do you want to be healed? And Jesus asks us that today in these areas in our hearts. Do you want to be healed? Do you want more? And I sense that Jesus was saying that to me as I read that. Do you want more healing? Do you want, are you willing to let me go deeper in your heart to make your heart more free, to rid you of more junk? Do you want that? Are you willing to go on that journey with me? And he said to that crippled man, then get up, take up your bed, and walk. Get up. Get up and walk out of that pain that you're in and follow Jesus. Follow him. Paul spoke two Sundays ago, as we've been talking about the heart, two Sundays ago, Paul spoke about the need for us to be vulnerable, the need for us to be real with God and real with one another and acknowledging that our hearts need to be healed acknowledging that we need change on the inside of our hearts, that there may be patterns in our lives that are hurt, that we're hurting ourselves or that we're allowing others to continue hurting us and that change needs to happen. I've been reading in Psalms, and I read this from Psalm 139. And if you do have your Bible, please do turn to this one because I'd like to look at this together. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, I'll read from the beginning. I'll first read verses 1 through 4. It says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. So, like, we could, we could read that differently. We could read, like, God, you know me. You see when I go to bed. You see when I get up. You see when I get in my car and drive. You know what I'm thinking. You, you know where I'm going to go. You know the things that I do. You know the, the patterns of behavior that I have. You know everything that I say. You know it before I even say it. You know what I said yesterday. You know what I'm going to say later today. That's what the psalmist is saying about God. And then I want you to go down to verse 23. It says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So we can read that differently to say, God, look inside me, and I want you to actually, like, show me and tell me what you're seeing. Since you're seeing it all anyway, like, tell me, like, why am I having these anxious thoughts? Why do I have anxiety? Why, why am I doing these things that are offensive to you and to others? And Lord, lead me. I want to follow you. Okay? So I love this. I'd never seen this before. The first four verses we read at the beginning, verses 1 through 4, are an acknowledgement that God already knows. Whether I want him to see it or not, he already sees it. You see it, God. You see where I go. You see what I do. You see what I'm thinking. You see what I say. That's what verses 1 through 4 are. 
But then what we just read, verses 23 through 24, those are an invitation. to They're personal for God to come and say, okay, God, you already know that stuff, but God, I'm inviting you. Come search me. Come test me. Come point out to me what's going on inside of me. So the first is an acknowledgement. The second is an invitation for God to come and to fix the broken places in me, to show me where I'm offending him, to show me where I'm offending others, to get those places healed in me so that there can be change. And it's a decision. It says, lead me in the way everlasting. It's a decision to follow the leadership of Jesus. And both need to happen in our lives. God's already aware He knows everything, whether we realize it or not. But what needs to happen is we need to open our hearts to him. And we need to say, Jesus, come show me my own heart. And I make a decision that I'm going to follow you in whatever you're leading me into. And that's how healing begins to happen in our lives. It's that vulnerability. It's that openness that says, yes, Lord, I do want to be healed. Yes, Lord, I will pick up my mat and follow you. I will not stay next to this pool where I'm hoping that maybe one day you'll just come and fix me. No, I will follow you and I will allow you to do the work in me that will work together, like Rebecca was saying this morning, that will work together to bring wholeness and healing in my life, wholeness and healing to my heart. One of the ways that we follow God fully with all of our hearts and that we keep our hearts healthy is in worship. Worship is such a key to keep our hearts healthy before God. And so I want to talk just in the last few minutes that we have about worship this morning. I want to talk about it in light of wholeheartedness and in light of having a healthy heart. Worship is so important as we talk about the heart because worship opens the door of my heart for the Holy Spirit to come and heal me. Worship is a space where the Holy Spirit can work on my heart so that I can trust again. If I've been hurt, then there's something in my heart that doesn't trust God fully. I might think that I'm not trusting people, but actually if I'm hurt, there's something in my heart that isn't trusting God. And worship is a space where the Holy Spirit can work on that. Look at this verse in Psalm 33, verse 21. Psalm 33, 21, it says, In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. One of the ways that we trust God and rely on him and have faith in him is by going to that place of praise and worship. You can't go into praise and worship truly in your heart without being vulnerable, without putting your trust in God again so that he can work on your heart. If it's true worship, and it's, it's a vulnerable place. Worship connects us with God's presence. Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is a wonderful praise and worship passage of Scripture. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. And what they mean by gates and courts is that in the Old Testament they had Um, a temple where they would go and worship. We don't have to go anywhere to worship, right? We can worship God wherever we are because of the way that Jesus has made for us to get into the presence of God. But they would actually go to the temple and they would go through the gates and they would come into like the outer courtyard 
And they were getting closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, which is where the presence of God was. And so they wrote, enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. If we want to come into the presence of God today, the way we go is not through a gate or through an actual court. We go through thanksgiving and praise. As we begin to thank him, and this can happen on your bed at night, this can happen in your car, this can happen here when we're in worship together. As we begin to thank him and praise him, we're coming closer to his presence, to his manifest presence. Yes, God is always with us, but we're coming into that space where we are with the Holy Spirit, allowing him to work on our hearts. So worship connects us with the presence of God. You feel like God's far off? You don't feel his presence? Begin to thank him and praise him. And that's how we come into his presence. Worship connects us with heaven. Worship is the atmosphere of heaven because as we read about in the book of Revelation, worship is what is happening in heaven all the time, 24-7 in the throne room of God today where, where God is and Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. All around them, there's worship happening all the time, 24-7. You want to know what heaven is like? It's worship. So you want to experience the presence of God? You want to have heaven's reality here on earth? Where does that happen? Worship. As we begin to worship here, we're connected with what is happening there. And the impossibilities are no longer impossibilities because nothing's impossible where God is, right? So as I go into his presence by worship, I begin to have possibilities open to my real life here on earth that wouldn't be possible otherwise. I love this song by Jeremy Riddle called Be Enthroned. Listen to it if you want to go find it. It's, it's just, it's one of those songs that kind of just takes you up into the, um, the throne and like just the reality of what's happening in heaven and just the reality of worship. It just gives you such a big picture of all time and space in regards to worship. I want to read you the lyrics. It's called Be Enthroned by Jeremy Riddle. We've come to join the song sung long before our lives. So when we come here to worship on a Sunday, we're not just singing songs. We're joining in with something that has been going on since the beginning of time and has never stopped. We're just like tuning into the station to be a part of it. You get it? It's so much bigger than what we do for just a moment. We've come to join the song sung long before our lives to raise our voice along heaven and earth alike. So when, when earth begins to praise, it just joins in the song that's already happening in heaven. Ooh, it gives me goosebumps. <laughs> be enthroned upon the praises of a thousand generations. Be enthroned upon the praises of a thousand generations. For generations and generations and generations, praise has been going up to God. You are worthy, Lord of all. Unto you, the slain and risen King, we lift our voice with heaven, singing worthy, Lord of all. And all through this life we lead, and on through eternity, because this life is just a piece of it, right? It's going to continue on into eternity forever. So all through this life we lead, and on to eternity, our endless praise will cry, Jesus be glorified. You want to know what heaven's going to be like and eternity's going to be like? Worship. And we get to experience that and participate in that here on earth when we worship. Worship takes us beyond our limited space and time and into eternity. 
It takes us into infinite impossibility. So that sounds great, right? And we can have all the feels in the moment, but the problem is that when we're broken and hurting, sometimes we don't feel like worshiping, right? That's the truth. I don't always feel like worshiping. When my problems are in my face, when my pain is in my face, my natural response is not necessarily praise the Lord, right? It's very difficult sometimes to have a response of worship. So what do we do about that? I read this quote recently by Eugene Peterson that I want to read to you. Eugene Peterson is the man who wrote the um, interpretation of the Bible called The Message. I don't know if any of you have read that. It's sort of a common day conversational way of communicating the scriptures. This is the man who wrote that. And this is something he says about worship. He says, we live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves, and that doesn't mean fake, it means doing an action, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker then we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. So in other words, if I go through the actions, I'll begin to feel. But if I wait for the feelings, I'll never act because those feelings aren't coming sometimes, right? Worship is an act that develops feelings for God. Isn't that awesome? If you start to date somebody, you develop feelings for them, right? Worship is an act that develops feelings for God not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. When we obey the command to praise God in worship, our deep, essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. So what do we take from that? Actions are more powerful than feelings, but feelings do follow our actions. So when we make a decision to worship God, no matter how we feel, our feelings will come, and it grows our relationship with God, and it grows the depth of our connection with God, and it grows our love toward God. It's my heart. It's Paul's heart. It's the heart of of the elders team that leads here that we would have a culture of worship in Border City Church, that it would be something we're strong in, that it would be like uh, one of the traits that we carry, something that we're known for, that we are worshipers. That's in our hearts. Um, so we thought it would be good, and I'm just going to take just a couple more minutes. We thought that it would be good for me just to take a few minutes just to talk very practically about worship and what happens here when we worship or even on your own in your home or in your car, whatever that looks like, so that we're all be on the same page, right? Because you don't know what you don't know, right? So let's all kind of get onto the same age about some of this. So the definition, the English definition of praise is to express warm admiration. That's what praise means. The English definition of worship means to honor or show reverence for the divine, to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. Okay, so those are the meanings of praise and worship, even within our own language and our own culture. So both of those definitions don't suggest that they're only quiet and private, right? I mean, I see words like to express, to show, extravagant. 
So even within our own language, praise and worship is not necessarily something that's supposed to be quiet and private only. It can be quiet. I can praise God quietly in my heart, but it's not only supposed to be that. Psalm 22:25 says, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And then in the New Testament, in Hebrews 2, verse 12, we see that again, in the midst of the church, I will praise you. So it's something that happens publicly. It can happen privately, but praise is also something that is to happen when we're together, that in, around everybody, in front of people, I'm going to praise God, okay? There's, there's something in that. Um, both of these words, praise and worship, are active. And I just think about, you know, like we're right here by like Ford Field and Comerica Park and Little Caesars Arena. There's a lot of praise and, and worship that's happening, that happens in those arenas, right? Either for a team or for a, a band or a performer. There's expression and there's applause and there's joy and there's adoration that happens, right? People are very happy to show expressive praise for things like that, but sometimes are more reserved to show that praise toward God. And yet, how much more should we be willing to show expressive praise to somebody who actually is worthy? I mean, do we really need to scream for somebody who scores a, what do you say, scores a touchdown? Sorry, I'm not a football person. Who gets a home run? Who, who hits a home run? I don't know. Whatever. I don't know the terms. How, what have they actually done to, for humanity, right? And yet we're happy to jump up and down and scream and say how much we love them. I mean, what has Jesus done? He's done so much more for us and for humanity and for all time. Surely we can find it within us to be expressive in our adoration of him, right? Now, looking at the Hebrew word, as I said, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament was written in Greek. Looking at the Hebrew word for worship, worship means to bow down or to lie down in humility before God. So, is it possible that at times in worship you might kneel? Sure. Absolutely. It's an outward sign that you're wanting to humble yourself before God because of His greatness. There's multiple Hebrew words for praise. We have one word in English, and it's praise. But in the scriptures, if you study it, there's like, I think it's like eight or nine different words that were used at different times, depending on what they were wanting to express. Like they had that many words for praise. So I just want to go through those with you quickly because it shows us what praise is supposed to look like. Halal is where we get the word hallelujah. And it's the primary word that they had in Hebrew for praise. And it means public praise. It even contains in its meaning to be clamorously foolish. So, like, that's what I picture for those football games, right? People get clamorously foolish. Well, did you know that there's in Scripture that we can be that way about God? That our praise should be so expressive that at times you might even look foolish. Like, what is up with her? Well, she's just praising God. Like, she's that in love with him. Like, she loves him that much, and she's that excited about what he did that she's praising him, okay? Another word is yada, and that means the extended hand. So that's why we raise our hands. It's in the Bible. It's not just something we do. It's, it's, it means the extended hand, and it, it contains in its meaning the opposite of wringing the hands. So like when someone's worried and they wring their hands, the opposite of that is yada, releasing my concerns and my worries and my fears to God. God, I trust you. 
I bring you my worship. Another one is Shabak, which means to shout in triumph. Shouting because God is victorious. Just like you would shout, um, you know, like at the end of a war when all the soldiers come back and you shout because they were victorious and you celebrate. That's why we shout sometimes in worship and praise. Not because we're crazy. We shout because all of a sudden we realize God has got this. He's victorious. He's already won this for me. And what happens when we shout, Numbers 23, 21, 23, 21 says, The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. When we shout, we move ourselves into that victory. It's no longer just what Jesus did, but now it's I'm a part of that victory. He did that for me. And sometimes, have you ever been praising and you just feel like, I got to shout, I got to shout. There's a shout in me that's going to come out. And I encourage you when you feel that, do it. Nobody around here is going to look at you weird. When you hear me go, woohoo, that's because in my heart, I just had a sense of, wow, God has got this and he is winning for me. So be expressive in those moments because it moves your heart into agreement with the reality of what Jesus has done for you. Barak means to kneel down in adoration. Tahila means to sing. That's why sometimes when I'm leading worship, I'm always like, okay, guys, sing. Like, let's sing this together. Like, it's not enough that the worship team is, is singing this. Let's all sing this together because as you actively participate, you are rehearsing the things that God has done, singing his praise. The word zamar means to pluck the strings of an instrument like Paul was doing this morning and like Rebecca does. We praise God on instruments. That is biblical. And as you study the scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, you will see examples of, of praise and worship looking like singing, uh, dancing, music, instruments, shouting. Those are all things that you see all throughout scripture. And I just want to look real quick again at the definition of, of wholehearted that we looked at at the very beginning. Wholehearted in, in the Webster Dictionary means completely and sincerely devoted, determined, or enthusiastic. And I want you to think about that in, in relationship to worship. Does our worship look completely and sincerely devoted, determined, or enthusiastic? And then Webster gives a second definition. And it says, marked by complete earnest commitment, free from all reserve or hesitation. So I just don't want any of you to feel reserved or hesitant when we worship. I want to move that off of us. And I want to invite us to, yes, in the big picture of what we looked at today, let's be wholehearted in life. Let's be wholehearted in our pursuit of Jesus. Um, but let's also be wholehearted in worship. Let's go after that as a church. When we come together and we worship, let's not hold back. Now that we've looked at this together and we understand what some of the meaning and the purpose is behind some of this, let's go for it when we worship. And the, the thing I love about it is that as we worship, whether it's here or whether you're alone, that's part of how God brings you to wholeness, to that whole heart. When you worship him, wholeness comes into your heart. 